Good morning. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to study, we're continuing our study of Philippians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 30 this morning. You know, chapter 2 is probably one of, well, it's probably my favorite chapter in Philippians. And uh, one of my favorites in the Bible especially the passage at the beginning, which talks to us about having the mind of Christ. And um, Philippians 2 begins with a call to all believers to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way we demonstrate this, it says in verse 2, is to be like-minded. Also in verse 2, it says, having one mind. And then it says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind that was in Christ Jesus? It says, who though he was God, he humbled himself for you and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so, this is so strange to us. As believers, we've heard it. We we know we are to live this way. But humanly speaking, it's the opposite of everything in our flesh. And everything in our flesh is me, 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 myself, and I. And the Lord is really saying to us here, look, that's not the way to live the Christian life. The way to live the Christian life is for others. Think more highly of others than you do of yourself and live this way. This is the way we should live, putting others ahead of ourselves and not be self-seeking. Instead of looking out for number one, we are not number one. We are to look out for um, the interests of others, consider what others need as being more important than what you need and what I need. And if we seek to humble ourselves rather than exalt ourselves and serve as bondservants instead of reigning as kings, then we have the mind of Christ, who clearly did that for us. So in chapter 2, it's very interesting the way it's written. First of all, Paul writes uh, and says at the very beginning, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he illustrates for us what the mind of Christ is by giving the best example he could find, and that was Jesus Christ himself, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But if you notice, um, Paul then illustrates it two more times in this passage. And um, last week, we looked at the example of Timothy, and Paul says of Timothy that there was no one more like-minded than Timothy. In his life, as he looked at all the people he knew, there was no one more like-minded. So Paul is saying, be like Christ, have the mind of Christ, that is the way I am living, and there's no one more like-minded who lives like that more than Timothy. And so he was going to send Timothy to them. And so, How did Timothy um, show the mind of Christ? And he did this by um, sincerely 
caring for the Philippian church. That's what Paul says. He sincerely cares for you. He did not seek his own good, but the good of the believers at Philippi and their spiritual growth. Verse 21 talks about that. And then he demonstrated that he had the mind of Christ by serving with Paul as a son serving his father. Verse 22. So that's the second illustration in Philippians 2. The third illustration is the character that we're going to look at this morning, Epaphroditus. And we'll look at that in verses 25 through 30. So let's read that first. Verse 25 says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So, so excuse me if I take a few sips of water. I'm kind of thirsty today. So what do we know about Epaphroditus? Actually, very little. We know very little about him. Now some of you may, who like words may have noticed that in his name you see the word Aphrodite. Epaphroditus is a, is a form of the word Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, also known as Venus. And you say, well, why does a Christian have a name like that? <laughs> Don't read too much into it. His name was very common at the time, and it actually morphed to mean loving or handsome. And what parent who has a newborn child doesn't think that his chi their child is the most handsome child they have ever seen? And um, I've seen some pretty ugly mugs that the parents... Um, you know, present as the most handsome. None of yours, of course, but uh, it's been quite interesting. And we're all like that. We all think that our children are the most beautiful and the most handsome, the, the greatest children that there are. And so I'm sure his parents felt that too and named him Epaphroditus. It means belonging to or favored by Epaphrodite. And this could indicate, just by the name Epaphrodite, being named that, it could mean that uh, his parents were actually of Greek origin or Greek heritage. Um, there was another man in the Bible whose name is found in Colossians, and it's, it's again a form of this name called Epaphras. Most of us don't believe it's the same person. We believe that they're two separate people, but they had a, a derivation of the same name. So we really know nothing about his background. We don't know anything about his family, his work, his conversion, his spiritual gifts, his ministry at Philippi. The first mention we have of him is here in verse 25 of Philippians 2. 
But right away, Paul introduces him to us in a very special way. And he says five things about him. And we're going to look at each one of the five things that he says about him. First of all, he says, he is my brother. And as I look around the room this morning, and I look into your faces, I ask you the question, are you my brother? You say, well, I can't be. I'm a woman. Well, from the standpoint of a Christian, you can be my brother. Um, you know, when I was growing up, <clears throat> I kind of feel like I was shortchanged. I just have to tell you. I had no brothers. My parents had girls. They had three of them, and they had me. And you say, yeah, but you were spoiled. Yeah, that's true, I was. I was spoiled by them. But I still felt kind of gypped that I didn't have a, a brother. I had a very close male cousin, and we kind of were, we did everything together. We got into all kinds of mischief together. And... Um, uh, loved him dearly. He uh, passed away when he was about 30 years old. But I didn't have a brother until I was adopted. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought you lived with your parents until you moved out of the house and you had the same parents all your life. Well, I did. And my parents, my mom lived to be quite old and my dad is still alive. So what are you talking about adoption? And what I'm talking about is when I was adopted into the family of God, all of a sudden, I had all kinds of brothers, male and female, okay? All kinds of brothers. And um, it changed, my life changed completely. I was adopted into the family of God, and I found myself surrounded with brothers. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, and to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I entered into the family of God. I was adopted as his son, just like you who have believed were adopted as children of God as well. And you are my brothers, and yes, you were my sisters um, in the Lord. And um, it's not a bloodline in the sense of being born from the same human family, but it is a bloodline in the sense that we were born as a result of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on Calvary's cross. And so if you are my brother, that means that just like me, you came to a point in your life, at some point in your life, you came to realize that you were a sinner and that you needed forgiveness for your sins. And you personally trusted in the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as full payment for your sins. And when you trusted in him, something miraculous took place in your life. You were born again and you became a child of God. And the moment you receive him, you're born again into a new family where God is now our father. He was not our father before. God is not the father of all mankind. God is the father of those who trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every believer is your brother, every believer. And they may go to a different church. They may live in a different country. You may have not ever met them, but they are still your brother in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, are you my brother? It's a simple question, it deserves a simple answer. Ask yourself the question, do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Are you 
my brother. And so Paul says of Epaphroditus, he is my brother. There's a closeness, there's an intimacy, there's a fellowship, there's a relationship that he had with Epaphroditus that had nothing to do with what family he was born into, but rather the family he was born again into. Epaphroditus is my brother. Common bond and fellowship. And you know, really, uh, in the Proverbs it says that uh, um, uh, a friend who is near is sometimes closer than a brother who is far away. Well, I could go beyond that and say that, that a brother in Christ is far closer to me than a natural brother or sister who still does not know the Lord. I may be close to them, but I'm closer still to those who love the same Lord that I love. <clears throat> and as brothers in the Lord and as sisters in the Lord, the Bible tells us that, uh, that we are going to be known by one trait. And that one trait is our love for one another. You will be known by your love for one another. And so if we love one another, and you look through the scripture at, the, at 1 Corinthians 13 as an example, it talks about how love acts out, how we act out love for one another. And love puts the other ahead of self. And so the idea is that, um, we go right back to this passage in Philippians chapter two, that we humble ourselves and think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. And so this is living out, if you will, the mind of Christ. Second, he says, he is my fellow worker. My fellow worker. There's a saying, I don't know where it came from and I don't know who to credit, so I'll just state it and say anonymous. We have many acquaintances, but few friends. Many acquaintances, few friends. In an Inc.com article by Eric Mack, he writes, it's become pretty well accepted that people typically have about 150 friends and acquaintances they, that interact on a regular basis. On average, about three to five of these 150 friends and acquaintances, and acquaintances are our closest friends. So you've reduced from 150 down to about five who are really our closest friends. There are a few dozen um, people who are close. So you have closest and then you have close, maybe there's a dozen. And the rest we you know, reach out to from time to time um, and uh, we, we check in with them now and then. Now, if you're on Facebook, you know that one of the motivating factors on Facebook is to see how many friends you can get, right? And they list it for you so you don't forget. And it says, you know, 351 friends. But then you go to somebody's site who's a friend of yours and you say, oh my goodness, they have 420. They have more than me, I need more friends. And so you start you know, adding more friends to your, to your list. And I think Facebook actually caps it off at 5,000. I don't think they allow you to show more than 5,000. So, um, but if you look at that list and you're honest with yourself, how many, so the younger crowd definitely have far, far more friends than us old people, you know. I'm lucky if, if I have three, you know. But 
the, the younger crowd, I mean, it's like a competition of, of how popular they are by the number of friends they have on Facebook. The reality is they still probably have about five really close friends, intimate, personal, really know you, I would do anything for you kind of friends. They might have a dozen, you know, close friends that, you know, they kind of hang around with a lot. And they might have a crowd of people that makes them feel swell on Facebook. But the reality is very few of those people are anything more than acquaintances. And so Paul takes it now to a completely new level. It's not just friends that he's talking about here. He's asking the question, he's, he's saying that uh, Epaphroditus is his fellow worker or his fellow laborer. And if you were to ask yourself the question, of all the friends that you have listed on Facebook or not, how many of them can you say, yeah, you know, that person is my fellow worker. I rub shoulders with that person in the work of the Lord on a regular basis. He or she is my fellow worker. And that would end up being a very small number indeed. If there was a Christian Facebook page of coworkers, your number would be quite shallow, quite, quite, quite small. Paul worked with a lot of men and women in the Lord's work, but there were very few among all of the friends that he had where he could say of them, as he said of Timothy, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now this does not mean that Paul only had one true friend and one true coworker. He had more, but not many more. The Bible uses the same phrase in referring to uh, the closeness of Epaphroditus, but he also uses the same phrase to some of the closest co-workers, co-laborers that he had, including um, Priscilla and Aquila in Romans chapter 16, Urbanus also Romans 16, and of course Timothy and Titus. So that's it. That's the number that he limited to calling them co-workers, co-laborers. He had others that he worked with. Luke was one other one, but he doesn't mention him that way. Uh, no doubt Luke was very close to him. Um, he also talked about the fact that he mourned over the loss of co-workers who tubed out. And he names some of them. He talks about Demas. Um, at one point, Demas seemed to stand out among those who labored with him. But D Demas tubed out and forsook Paul. Alexander the coppersmith, he says, did him much harm in 2 Timothy 14, or 4.14, and others uh, who burned out along the way. Later in this same book, next chapter, Paul says in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have for us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Are there some among those who have forsaken Christ, who were once counted among our friends? And sadly, sad to say, yeah. There are. There are some. 
So Paul, in this book of Philippians, actually covers the entire spectrum of workers, um, people like Timothy. There's no one like-minded. Um, and th then on, uh, ch in chapter 3, there are those who set their mind on earthly things and have become enemies of the cross. So I want to ask you this morning, are you my fellow worker? A fellow worker is someone who labors alongside of you and has the same goals, has the same passion for the Lord, has the same love for God's people and for God's word, for, uh, loves God's people and, and is concerned for their welfare, and one who lives in such a way that they have the mind of Christ. Do you have a mind of humility where you consider others better than yourself? Seeking first the kingdom of God? Or is your mind more on self-interest and um, the things of the world? Over the years in my Christian life, I have enjoyed the close fellowship, relationship that comes with working side by side with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I, we've shared things um, in, in ministry that can't be reproduced, it can't be duplicated. Um, and they are my fellow workers. The original church plant team consisted of five couples and two single men. I was one of the single men at the time. Those people who joined together and earnestly prayed together, met together, wept together, struggled together, labored together, they were our fellow workers in the work of planting Calvary Bible Chapel. From that team of people uh, who committed themselves to the work of evangelism and church planting, there's only one couple who remains, and that is Howard and Kathy Ormsby. They're the only ones left of that original group. They were all our coworkers. Some of them passed away. Some of them have gone on to other service or other works. But Howard and Kathy have been my co-workers, fellow workers, for over 35 years. That's a long time. It's a long time for them to put up with me, I'll just tell you that. <laughs> and it's something that cannot be duplicated. I could have somebody come in um, as a believer, fresh to, the, to Calvary Bible Chapel, and they, and they could say to me, I'm just like you in the sense of, you know, I'm a believer, I'm one of you, and, uh, you know, we, we really have a, a close-knit family tie. And that's true, we do in Jesus Christ. But there is a closeness, an intimacy, a fellowship that exists with people that you've labored with in particular work and service for the Lord. And I appreciate Howard and Kathy's faithfulness and their discipline and their diligence and their care for the saints over these many, many years. In my life, uh, for 12 years, I worked alongside of William McDonald and Gene Gibson in the uh, Discipleship Intern Training Program. And uh, less time with other men who, who joined us uh, at later dates. But we had the common goal and the common purpose of training young men for service 
um, for the Lord, training them in the scriptures and training, training them by pouring our lives into their lives with the goal of seeing them go on for the Lord and be useful in the ministry uh, to the Lord. And we dedicated ourselves to training these young men to be uh, future elders, future deacons, missionaries, or some form of Christian service. And each year for nine months, we taught the entire Bible to the group, as, uh, along with 40 uh, subjects, Bible subjects, and in practical ministry. And really, our goal was to pour our lives into theirs to raise up a new generation of servants who would serve the Lord. These men that I worked with were my fellow uh, workers. We had the same goal. We had the same vision. We, we saw eye to eye on things and in our service um, and to teach these men the mind of Christ. Um, I've lost those men. They're now enjoying heaven and I'm not, but soon will be. So it's sometimes you have fellow workers for just a season. Sometimes you have them for a period of, uh, an extended period of time and other times the Lord deems fit to, to take them. Um, week after week for three years, um, Rick Bellis and I taught a dozen men in, in the scripture here at Calvary. We taught the men to preach, to teach. We taught them to live for Christ. In addition, we would often um, uh, take a portion of scripture and, and team teach it on Sunday mornings. And I counted him as my fellow worker, uh, as a co-laborer in the word of God. And I could rely on him and he could rely on me. We would always, I would always feel comfortable with whatever he said. I, I just knew that I wasn't going to be sideswiped by some crazy thing that he might come up with. And oddly enough, he felt the same comfort about me. And so we had the same mind, the same purpose, the same goals, the same beliefs. We were fellow workers. In Israel, there are two major bodies of water. One is the Sea of Galilee, and the other is the Dead Sea. And if you know the geography, you know that the Jordan River runs into the Sea of Galilee first from the north end, and it fills it with fresh water. And at the south end of the Sea of Galilee, there's an outlet of the Jordan River that flows down to the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is full of life. It has an in inflow and it has an outflow. The Dead Sea is, well, dead. <laughs> it's lifeless. It's a salt, um, it's a very salty uh, mineral uh, uh, kind of a sea that life can't survive in that. There's water, it's the same water, but it flows in at the north end and it just stays there and stagnates. There's an inflow, but there's not an outflow. And so as a result of it, it's dead because it only takes water in, whereas the Sea of Galilee takes it in and gives it out. Many have come through these doors with the attitude of, what's in this church for me? In other words, it's about me. How can you minister to my needs? And uh, that's fine, we are here to minister to the needs of, of each person. But these people are particularly takers. They're like the Dead Sea. They take in, but they don't ever give out. And as a result, 
they're, they're, they're lifeless. There's not a lot of life in them. And um, whereas what is the way it's meant to be in the Christian life is we're to be more like the Sea of Galilee, where we take in teaching, where we take in training, where we take in the Word of God, but we give it out as well in its service to others, in its ministry to others. And, it's, and, a, and a body of water like that, just like a Christian like that, is full of life. We still need workers, even at this late hour in the church age. We need workers who will go into the world and preach the gospel. We need workers who will raise up the next generation, uh, um, dealing with the truths of the word of God, teaching all believers to observe all things that Jesus taught us. We need workers who will live sacrificially. We need workers who will serve sacrificially and give sacrificially with the mind of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I ask you again, are you my fellow worker? When Paul thought of Epaphroditus, there was a real, there was real satisfaction in his heart because they had co-labored together. They served with the same purpose, the same goals, the same mind, the mind of Christ. He was Paul's fellow worker. Third, in verse 25, he says, he is my fellow soldier. Paul takes the relationship to an even deeper level, not just a fellow worker, but a fellow soldier. Fellow soldiers have been through the same battles together. And I ask you this morning, are you my fellow soldier? There is a camaraderie among those who served in the same military unit or the same battlefield or served in the same mission. The survivors of the invasion of Normandy or Pearl Harbor survivors or those who have shared in battles in Vietnam or Iraq or some other theater operations share the same trauma the same survival, the same events, and life stories that they will never forget. There's, there's a closeness that comes through sharing those kind of battles together that doesn't exist uh, with those who have never been in a skirmish at all. Do you and I share the same spiritual battle scars? Um, have we fought in the same front lines together? Have we fallen to our knees together as we met with the enemy head on and have seen victories together? Have we endured casualties and losses together? Have we endured hardship, early mornings, sleepless nights, deprivation, loss, battle fatigue, all for the sake of Christ? Have we together supported our fellow soldiers whose minds and bodies have been <clears throat> have been broken? I, 
I think sometimes we don't realize how much of a fight it is. It's a fight. It's, have we endured any hardship? I guess is really the question. Have we endured any hardship at all for the Lord's cause? Are you my fellow soldiers? In 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, Paul says this, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. It's hard for me to understand a generation of people who call themselves Christians and yet show no discipline in the Christian life. We live in an era, in an era where participation trophies are handed out at sporting events for children. Everyone's a winner. That's just the weirdest thing in the world to me. Everyone gets a trophy. And some say that it is a generation with a sense of entitlement. And I think, I don't want to smear this generation because I think every generation has had people who felt entitled. <laughs> and so the question is, as believers, do we have that sense of entitlement that everything should be going our way? We should be number one. Clearly, this was not the case with Epaphroditus. Paul writes of him that he was his fellow soldier. It says he endured suffering for the sake of Christ. And Paul points out in this section that it nearly cost him his life. So I'm going to jump ahead to verse 27. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. It was actually in his capacity of serving the Lord that Epaphroditus fell ill. And he was so sick that he almost died. If the Lord had not stepped in, in his case, he would have died. But Paul says that the Lord had mercy on him. Otherwise, he would have been buried on the battlefield in Rome where Paul was imprisoned and where he went to join Paul on the front line of the battle. We know from the scripture, from the story of Job, for example, that our enemy is Satan. And Satan will do whatever he can to defeat us and to defeat the cause of the Lord. Paul himself had a medical condition. He called a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And we have seen some of our own company suffer afflictions and sickness at the hand of the enemy. He attacks physically. Some have endured cancer, heart conditions, or other afflictions. Matt was up here preaching last Sunday. I don't know if he told you this or if anybody knew, but his heart went into uh, arrhythmia. Is that correct? So he's standing here preaching to you and his heart condition is affecting him. So there, to me, that's an attack. It's a direct attack against him. Uh, this week, I've spent more time in <laughs> the ER than I should have. This is uh, just to remind me that I have a son that I need to go see as soon as the meeting's over, sick in the hospital. And uh, Satan attacks. He attacks physically. And uh, he attacks mentally. 
some having suffered depression, anxiety, and dementia. Others have suffered spiritually, being attacked by doubts and fears and turmoil. And at times, the Lord does not deliver out of uh, all sicknesses. At times, He doesn't. At times, He allows suffering and sickness to be had by believers for the rest of their life. In Paul's case, that, that was the case. And at times, He has mercy and delivers us from all of our troubles, as He did with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a spiritual warrior, and in his uh, engagement in the war, he became sick and nearly died. And Paul recognized that. He knew that Epaphroditus had come to serve him, and in doing so was serving the Lord. But he realized that, that his sickness was um, as a result of his service. Number four, it says uh, in verse 25, he is your messenger. The word messenger is the word apostolos, which is where we get our word apostle from. And so Paul is essentially saying, uh, Epaphroditus is your apostle. That doesn't mean that he was the pastor of the church. It doesn't mean anything other than sent one. He was a sent one. He wasn't an apostle in the sense of the 12 apostles and Paul who were uh, eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Those were a limited group of men who the Lord had set apart as the apostles. But here the word is used in a lesser sense um, as an apostle, a sent one. And so what Paul is saying by using this term is, is look Philippians, you chose this man as your representative, the one to come and serve me on your behalf, you sent him to me. He is your messenger. Um, and he was chosen for special service. The service he rendered was um, as a representative of the church of Philippi. The fact of the matter is the whole church couldn't pack their bags and move to Rome to minister to Paul, although they all wanted to, I'm sure every one of them. But it wasn't practical. And so they said, okay, who among us can we send who will adequately represent us, our heart, our passion for Paul, our desire to minister to his needs? And they selected Epaphroditus. That's fabulous. And so that, when he says he's a messenger, he's not saying, you know, well, he's your messenger kind of as, as an aside. He's saying, look, he's your chosen vessel. He's the one you chose to represent you adequately. And he's a good messenger in that sense. And so they sent him out to represent the interests and beliefs of the church to a specific area of um, serving the Lord, or serving Paul, and in, in, in doing so, serving the Lord. He thought high, they thought highly of him. We believe that Epaphroditus was the one who brought the gift. Um, they, they put together a financial gift to help support Paul Paul, as I mentioned to you uh, several weeks ago, was in a um, prison where he had certain freedoms. He could rent, he had to rent, um, we'll call it an apartment. Um, but he was, he was chained to guards 24-7, but he had the freedom to live in his own place. 
but he had to pay for it. That's the way it worked. And so this was part of um, them helping to support him uh, and, his, and his expenses along the way. And so they sent him to not only bring the gift, but to stay and to minister to Paul's needs there uh, in the home. While he was there, he fell ill. So verse 25 um, and number five, he is the one who ministered to my need. So when he got there, uh, it was about a 700-mile journey. So you imagine yourself walking 700 miles to go and serve somebody else. And that's what he did. Um, and as he looked for things to be done, he did them without fanfare, without a theatrical production. The bottom line is he went there to serve, and that's what he did. And I want to say this to you, that serving another person is an act of humility. When Jesus came, it says of him that he did not come to be ministered unto. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve us, to give his life a ransom for many. That is part of the humility of Christ. That is part of having the mind of Christ. When we look at others and say, how can I serve you? How can I minister to your needs? And the bottom line is he served. He put their interests, he put Paul's interests above his own. And we see um, the mind of Christ in action. You know, had they come to Epaphroditus one day at church and said, you know, Epaphroditus, we've, we've looked over the congregation. We think you're the best guy to go and serve Paul. To, we we want to trust you to take this gift to him. We have full confidence in you. Uh, will you do that? It was still something he had to agree to. Will you do that? Well, folks, you know, I really appreciate the honor and the, and the, the blessing that you want to bestow upon me. But you know what? I, I've got a life to live. You know, Paul's there. Somebody will take care of him. He's got the Lord. What does he need me for? It, had he said that, he would have been putting his own interests ahead of Paul's and, a, and ahead of the Philippian church. He could have said no. And had he said no, he would have lost the blessing that God was about to bestow upon him. God would still have taken care of Paul, and the Philippians would have probably picked another person. But he had the opportunity. And when an opportunity affords you to serve the Lord, don't immediately stand back and say, no. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you? How can I minister to the needs of others? How can I put others ahead of myself? And that's really what Epaphroditus did here. The one who ministered to my need, Paul said. And it's the mind of Christ in action. Think about it. Can you imagine Jesus in heaven communicating with the Father? And the Father says, this is the appointed time. This is the time that I have appointed for you to go to earth, to become a man, to die on the cross. You know what? I have other things to do right now. I have a whole universe to take care of. What do I need them for? Had he said that, can you imagine where we'd be? And so when the opportunity affords you to serve the ones that he loved and died for, seek to serve. Epaphroditus had the same mind. And in the course of his service, he fell ill. 
I don't know why. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say what he had. But it was, it was life and death situation. It was life-threatening. So Paul says in verse 26 that he considered it, well, in verse 25, he considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus since, verse 26, he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. So Epaphroditus heard through the grapevine that they, the Philippians, were distressed by his distress. And that made him more distressed that they were distressed. And so there's kind of this circular thing going on here about everybody being distressed over his sickness. And uh, the distress caused him more distress because of their distress. And he was concerned really more for them than he was for his own physical condition. And he didn't want them to feel like they were to blame for sending him in the first place. Oh my, if we had not sent him, if we had sent somebody more healthy, if we had sent a younger guy, if we had done this, done that, it's our fault for sending him. They were distressed. But he was willing to serve the Lord to the point of death. That's incredible to me, that he would say, you know what? My, my service is more important than my life. And it's interesting to note that although Paul had the gift of healing, and we see that in the scripture in various places, he didn't use the gift of healing to heal him. The sign gift that was used early on in the days of the church, that gift had already disappeared. It seems like it was no longer operational. Paul did not heal him. And it's very clear from this passage that it was not a healing by Paul. Instead, um, I am sure that both Paul and the church at Philippi called upon the Lord for his mercy uh, for Epaphroditus. And God was merciful um, to all of them by raising Epaphroditus from his sickbed and giving him health and strength once again. And so it's an encouragement to me, and it should be an encouragement to you, that the Lord still heals. It's not like healing is gone entirely, um, but faith healers are gone. Those who had the gift of healing are gone. Paul, who probably had more gifts than anybody I know, had the gift of healing and he could not heal him. But instead, they looked to the Lord. And as it says, you remember the story of um, the, the Jews who had gone through the Red Sea to the other side. And when they got to the other side, they rejoiced at their enemies having been defeated. And the first journey they took was to Mara. And it was, uh, the waters were bitter there. They could not drink them. And they complained to Moses about the bitter water. And Moses cried out to the Lord for his mercy. And the Lord mercifully told him to toss this tree into the water. And obviously it was a miracle that God caused the bitter waters to become sweet. And it says in that passage, God reveals himself for the first time in that passage as the Lord who heals you. And you know, any wise doctor, even today, who has any sense of um, uh, smartness to him, 
will recognize that there's only so much he can do or she can do. Any doctor is going to have to admit that the ultimate healing of the body or of the mind comes from God. Now they may not acknowledge it, they may not state it, but they've, any doctor who's seen enough people who have been near death and have survived has to recognize that there is a God in heaven who heals. He is still the God who heals you. And sometimes it just requires us to get on our knees and simply seek the Lord and ask him for his mercy. Lord, be merciful to us and raise this one up from their sick bed. Uh, and Paul said, you know, had he died, so that the Lord was merciful not only to Epaphroditus and raising him from the dead, or raising him from sickness, I should say, or almost death. Paul was, uh, God was merciful to Paul. He said, look, I already have sorrow. I'm in prison. I have nobody to take care of me. I'm alone. And had I lost Epaphroditus too, the sorrow would have been too much for me. And so the Lord knew how much I could take. And it's a wonderful thing to know that, that God does not allow us to be tested beyond what we are able to bear. And he was, and Paul freely admits that it would have been too much sorrow for him had he lost Epaphroditus that way. And uh, so he sent him back to the Philippians. Now he was well, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to make that 700 mile journey. And so Paul looks at the situation and he says, Epaphroditus was sick near to death. He's now been restored by the Lord. I'll just keep him. But he doesn't say that. He has the mind of Christ. And he says it's more important that the Philippian church sees him face to face and enjoys the joy that will come from seeing this sick brother well again and able to minister. And he says the, the, the needs at Philippi are more important. The emotional needs at Philippi are more important than my physical and practical needs here in Rome. That's the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So for those of you who are on Facebook, uh, that program will often bring up a profile of someone you might know. You ever seen that? You know, there's a picture of somebody, you go, mm, yeah, I kind of maybe know them, or oh yeah, I met them, you know, a long time ago. Uh, in fact, I just had one this weekend um, th that came up and I looked at the names and I said, do I know these people? And I had to stop and really think, how, who are they? And I go, oh yeah, I met them at a funeral. <laughs> that, the first time. And uh, they found me somehow on Facebook and asked to be my friend. And so you have this, uh, at the bottom, or next to their name, you have this uh, little clicker thing that says, add friend. Or if you really don't want to be their friend, you just say, click on remove. I don't want to see them again, okay? You have that choice, add friend. Well, consider Paul is sending you a friend request in the next verse here. And that friend is Epaphroditus. He is now, obviously he's gone home to be with the Lord. But listen to what Paul says in verse 29. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold 
such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So choose your friends carefully. And choose friends like Epaphroditus. People like this are precious friends. When Paul says that Epaphroditus supplied what was lacking in your service toward me, he was not suggesting that the Philippians were negligent. After all, they had sent him in the first place with a gift. So they weren't being negligent. What he means is that he knew that all of the Philippians wanted to be there with him and couldn't come. And so he was supplying for him what they couldn't supply practically, you know, in, in physically uh, with him. So he was their hands, he was their feet, he was their, the heart of the Philippian church, and it was service to Paul and service to Christ. You know, such a friend. How many friends on Facebook do you have? You don't have to answer. How many of those friends are close friends? How many of those friends would actually die for you? Okay. You have very few real friends. How many friends would actually die for you? Epaphroditus was a man who was a friend like that, who would die for the sake of the Philippian church, would die in the service for Paul and in the service for the Lord. Such a friend is worth his weight in gold. And so Paul says, such a, a man as Epaphroditus should be honored, should be held in high esteem. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. God, it says, has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. He is held in high esteem. Epaphroditus had the mind of Christ and served nearly to death. Such a man should be highly esteemed. Do you have friends like Epaphroditus? And more importantly, are you a friend like Epaphroditus? Am I a friend like Epaphroditus? May we live in such a way that we demonstrate practically the mind of Christ as we serve and minister to the needs of those here at Calvary Bible Chapel. And let's just pray and we'll close the meeting with prayer today. Father, we thank you for such a man as Epaphroditus, one who practically showed the mind of Christ, acted out in his service for you and his service for others. Thank you, Lord, for this um, man who really should be highly esteemed, one who followed in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to sacrifice his own life for the needs of others. And Lord, we just pray that we might be people like Epaphroditus, that we might be like him in our love for the saints, our love, love for our brothers and sisters, and in our service to you and service to them. We just pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause your word to take uh, root in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.